encourage you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, as you're making your way there, I want to remind you and encourage you this uh, coming week on Christmas Eve, we will have a Christmas Eve service here. Um, if you're still in town, I know many of you are traveling, many of us have already started to travel, um, but if you are still going to be around this week, we would certainly love to see you here this Christmas Eve at 6 p.m. Invite a neighbor, bring your family who may be visiting uh, in town, uh, encourage you to be here as we spend a night of singing carols together and hearing the scriptures read, uh, walking through uh, that wonderful, beautiful story of uh, not just the promises of God in the Old Testament being made, but the promises kept through Jesus coming to be our Savior. And so we look forward to this Christmas Eve. It's going to be a great time together. Look forward to seeing you here. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is our passage today. Let's pray as we look together at God's word. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Lord, may it indeed uh, illuminate our hearts and by your spirit draw us to follow you and to love you more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We live in a contract-oriented society. Contracts are all around us. You think about a contract, a contract is an agreement typically between two parties signifying certain responsibilities that both parties have toward one another. And that could be between individuals, that could be between you and Verizon or AT&T. Contracts come in many shapes and sizes. We use them all the time, dealing with where we live, the utilities we use, the phones we carry, and even in our employment. Some of you are contractors, right? Some of you have the responsibility, even in your job, to work with contracts every day. And so we live and breathe in a world of contracts. The thing about a contract is that most contracts have a starting and ending point. They function for a limited period of time. Even if it's for a long season, they are still limited in that they have a starting point and an ending point. And many times they are conditional, meaning that a contract can be broken if one of the parties does not fulfill their responsibility. Contracts do have their place, but contracts have their limits. You think about a contract, I want you to Let's contrast that. Let's, let's look at a contract in comparison to a covenant, for example. Covenant is certainly more language we would find in the Scripture. A covenant, though similar, is different than a contract. Like a contract, covenant is an agreement between two parties. However, the difference is with a covenant, both parties agree to uphold their end of the agreement regardless of whether or not the other party keeps their part. A violation of a covenant by one party doesn't matter as far as the other party's responsibility to continue in what they have agreed to do. This is why we often refer to marriage, for example, as being a covenant, even though many like to view it and even practice it as a contract. 
Well, when we think about the difference between a contract and a covenant, what we're going to look at this morning is a covenant that God made with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. A covenant that has radical implications for not just the people of Israel in his day, but for you and for me. We think about this covenant God makes with David. We're not thinking in terms of a contract. We're thinking of in terms of a covenant where God is committed to keeping his promise that he makes here with David. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is perhaps one of the most significant passages in the Old Testament. Specifically because of what this covenant communicates. This chapter not only builds on the promise God made with Abraham, it will become the very covenant that defined the spiritual life of Israel and became even the hope of Israel as they longed for the fulfillment of what God promises here to David. This covenant that God makes with David specifically focuses in on God's provision, his promise and provision of a king. Let's look at this passage together. 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house, talking about David, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, Thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of, a great, of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build for me a house, uh, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish his throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. As God makes this promise of an eternal throne, 
of an eternal kingdom. He's making this promise to King David, saying, your throne, David, will be forever. He is promising a kingdom that will be established for all eternity. And on this throne will be a king forever and ever. This is the promise. This is the covenant that God is making with King David at this point in history. And he is promising him that his kingdom, that his throne will be forever. Well, as we think about that promise, I want us to walk through this passage looking at four aspects about this promise, about specifically this king and the kingdom which will be made up under his rule. There are things that we need to consider, four of them this morning, as we consider this promise, this covenant that God makes to David. First of all, as we consider the promise of a king and the promise of an eternal kingdom, we need to understand that this is going to be a controlled lineage. In chapter 5, if you go back in 2 Samuel, we see that David is anointed king of Israel. David is anointed king, and there would There would not be anyone who would follow him that would be like him. In fact, the majority of what we see in the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, there is more written and more spoken of concerning David than any other king that you will find in the scriptures. I mean, this guy is like the the main guy of Israel when you think about the human kings, those who would come and rule the people of God. The legacy he would leave would, not, would, would be one that no one would forget. We're still talking about it in 2015. It's an, amazing, it's an amazing story. It's an amazing lineage. Yet, David was only a man. He was only a man. He was born. He lived. He died. He was only a man. And long before he died, God makes this promise right here to him. He makes the promise in verses 12 through 16 specifically. He says this, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, that, that, that just means when you die, when you're done, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He goes on there and says, this kingdom It's not a temporary kingdom. This is an everlasting kingdom. Can you imagine hearing that? Can you imagine David hearing, you know, David's in in the business of being a king. He, He knows what it takes to be a king. He knows kings have their time of reign. He knows they have their time of departure. And God is telling him, listen, even when you die, your throne will be established forever. promise begins by God telling David, I will raise up your offspring. The very thing that was about to unfold, the very thing that was about to happen even after David was gone was a testimony. It would be a testimony. Indeed, we can look back now and see that it is a testimony to the fact that God in his sovereignty not only promised, but he fulfilled all that he told David. God is one of those glorious beings. He's the only true and living God there is. He's, he's the only one that can make a promise and perfectly fulfill it. He's, he, and he does that because he is in sovereign control over the affairs of the Lord. He's the one that raises kings up. He's the one that brings them down. 
very thing that was about to unfold was going to happen under the sovereign guidance of God. God would raise up David's offspring. We would do well to remember this because as the narrative continues, as you continue to read throughout your Bible, if you continue to read the narrative of the Old Testament, we know that David's sons, David's grandsons, his great-grandsons, his great-great-grandsons, and on and on we could go, they come and they go. Some of them were okay. Some of them were quite evil. Some of them reigned well. Some of them had horrible reigns. And at times, when you are continuing to read the narrative long after David has died, there are times when it seems as if things were spiraling radically out of control. But God made a promise. And God is faithful to his promises. God not only made a promise, his his ability to make, to bring the promise to fulfillment would be on full display. Friends, this should encourage us. This should encourage us because even when we look around us today, we can see things through many kinds of lenses. We can look around us today and we can see the world spiraling into continued chaos. It's been that way since Genesis 3. I think sometimes we think that this is the first time that things have been bad. Friends, it's been this way since Genesis 3, and it will be this way till Christ comes again. It should not surprise you that chaos seems to reign in this world. It's because we live in a broken, fallen world. But God is a promise-making and promise-keeping God. Even in the midst of chaos, it, are, it is promises like these that should give us great confidence and hope. Even for David, he would see things that would that would make him wonder about this promise. This should encourage us because if we have a good foundation that includes a belief that God is in complete control and is able to fulfill his promises, even when we think, how in the world is this going to be fulfilled? If we have that, conf- if we have that confidence, we have that good foundation that God is sovereign, he is in control, then even in the midst of chaos and turmoil, we will have hope. There's this entire story of God's promises all the way through the Old Testament fulfilled in Christ in the New Testament is a testimony to the faithfulness of God. Even when Israel seemed to do everything possible to to misdirect these promises, it seemed like Israel did pretty much everything they could do to say, okay, God, we're going to do everything that we can do to, to, to demonstrate that you're not going to keep, be able to keep your promise. I mean, they, they, they just did. I don't know if that was their motive, but that certainly seems to be the case. They, they were a mess time and time again, but God was faithful to his promise. The promise God made to David was that through David's offspring, he would establish kingdom, and this kingdom would be permanent. It would be a permanent kingdom. The promise would initially be realized through David's son Solomon, That's why verse 14 can say what it says. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Don't run too quickly to the New Testament and say Jesus because verse 14 also says when he commits iniquity. Well, Jesus didn't sin. Right, he didn't. So you have to understand that that prophecy works on on a scale. It works kind of like a telescope. It helps you to see things 
far away, yet to be fulfilled, but there are things right there in the present that are also being accomplished. That's how it, how it works. There's initial fulfillment and there's future fulfillment. And so Solomon is the one who would come and be that son that's spoken of. He's the one that would build the house. Solomon built the temple. And so we know that it, this was initially realized in David's son, Solomon. He would be the descendant of David who would build the temple. He was the wisest man on earth. He is the one that even in his reign, Israel flourished under. But he still had his faults. And he died. So even though this promise was initially realized in Solomon, we know that there had to be something more to it. There had to be, there had to be something yet to come for this promise to continue. The Old Testament continues to affirm that as it anticipates the further fulfillment of this promise. In fact, if you read in Psalm chapter 89, the long passage, but let me just pick up in verse 19. Psalm 89 verse 19 says, Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil. I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. It goes on and talks about how the enemy shall not outwit him and those kinds of things where victory will be found in in him. And then we pick up in verse 29. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But, this is beautiful, I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant. Here's the difference between a covenant and a contract. Even though you break your part, I am faithful to my part. Friends, we have to understand covenant, commitment, membership, marriage, all of those things are rooted in God's own ability to keep covenant and be faithful to his own people. It's another sermon for another day. He's faithful. I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. Psalmist understood this promise made to David was a promise God would keep. All the way through the Old Testament, we could look at passage after passage after passage and see, even when we get to the prophets, how they are awaiting still. their, Their hope is rooted in long after David was gone, long after Solomon was gone, their hope was still in this promise that God would have an eternal king. Let's move to point number two. There is this controlled lineage we'll come back to in just a moment, but but I want you to understand that this promise that God is in complete control of bringing to fulfillment also has a clear purpose. What was the purpose? Well, if you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see in the beginning there in verses 1 through 3, David's desire is to build for God a house. David lives in a house of cedar. 
Now, you may not think much about cedar. You may think, well, I've got cedar siding and it's kind of a pain. Well, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about when you lived in a house of cedar in those days, we're talking luxury. We're talking amazing accommodations. Well, I mean, this was like the best of the best. David lived in this kind of situation and he says, listen, God, the ark, the, the presence of God, so to speak, was, was in the tabernacle, this, this transportable tent that he had been dwelling in. And David's like, hey, I've got this nice place. If anybody deserves a nice place, it is God. I'm going to build for him a house. Nathan says, sounds good to me. Go do what, what's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But God had other plans. And that's where we pick up in verses four through following. David here is referring to building God a physical house, the temple. But the Lord says something different. In fact, when you pick up here in the, in, in later on in this text, this is what we read. He says in verse 8, Now therefore, thus so you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the great name of the ones of the earth, the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. You hear what's going on here? David says, God, I'm going to make you a house, temple, beautiful, extravagant. And the Lord says, not so fast. In fact, David, I'm going to build a house for you. It's the same word that's being used here. David's intent is a physical structure. God's intent is a dynasty, a lineage, a people, a family. So you have this back and forth going on here. David says, I'm going to build for your house. And God says, no, you're not. I'm going to build you a house. So when you get to the New Testament, we see similar language being used. For example, in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, this is what we read. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him shall not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected becomes the cornerstone. Stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. And then you get to the end in the book of Revelation chapter 5. We sort of see the ultimate fulfillment of what is being promised even long ago in the Old Testament. And you get to Revelation 5, verse 5. This is John's vision. He sees there in Revelation in verse 5, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more. 
Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And he goes on there to explain um, the promise that's being fulfilled. And it says, they sang a new song, worthy are you, verse 9, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. All I'm trying to say here is that the promise made in 2 Samuel chapter 7 where God says, David, I'm going to build for you a house. He's not talking about a physical structure. He's talking about a people that he will build that will not just be the people of Israel, but it will also be those who are grafted in to include the Gentiles where we will all together be this great house that God has built because he promised to do so to David. You just look around this room right now. This is a testimony to the building work of God. You are part of this house. You are part of the very house and the promise that God made to David. I'm going to build for you a people. It's a testimony to God's grace. Read in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. He's talking about how Jew and Gentile alike are brought in together, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. We know that temple language, building language in the New Testament is, finds its fulfillment in the people of God. So it's a clear purpose. This king that God is promising is building a kingdom that will never fade. Can I just ask you, very simply and straightforward this morning, do you believe yourself to be part of this house? Do you believe that you right now, are part of this house that God is building. And friend, if you say, I I just don't know, I'm not sure, I'm I'm still struggling even with what you're talking about. If you go back to Revelation chapter 5, where he talks about building this kingdom, which also can be referred to this house, this house and kingdom, it's the same group, it's the same people. God's building for himself a people, define it however you want to, a kingdom, a house, a priesthood, a holy nation, all all of those terms are being used in the Bible to to explain us. If if you're saying, well, how do I I belong to this house? Revelation chapter 5 said, by his blood, he ransomed people for God. It's by the blood of the coming king, by the blood of this coming one who would ransom a people as he stood in their place. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago as he was that perfect substitute to bear their punishment and their sin. Friend, if you are here today and you, you just, you're not sure if you're part of this house, I'm not talking about a building, I'm talking about the people of God. All, all you need to realize is that, that you, like the rest of us, just like the rest of us, are a sinner separated from a holy God. That's who we are. We are sinners separated from a holy God and God's great gift to us was to send his only son into the world. He is the one that was the coming king, but he's also the one that would be the savior of sinners. And if you would simply place your hope and trust in him, knowing that his life, his death, and his resurrection was all that God required for your redemption, you will be part of this house, you will be built, you will be strengthened, your sins will be forgiven, and you will be accepted.
this king had a clear purpose. But number three, we do see this certain fulfillment that God has for us. The covenant God made with David did have an initial fulfillment in Solomon. Solomon came, he built God a house. God says, by the way, David, you're not going to build me a house. Your son will build me a house, but I'm going to build for you a house. Solomon comes, he builds the temple, and we see an initial fulfillment there in Solomon. But again, according to the rest of the Old Testament, there was, there was this greater fulfillment yet to happen. Long after David, the prophets continued to hold out this promise, anticipating that day when there would be a coming king, king who would perfectly fulfill this promise we, we quote this passage all the time at Christmas time, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And listen, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This will happen. And then when we get to the New Testament, the very first chapter, the very first verse of the Gospel of Matthew, we read these words. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of of David. Luke's account says this in chapter 1, verse 31 and 32, and behold, the angel speaking to Mary, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be the son of the most high, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. God did just as he said. Peter recognizes this very fact in his sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Friends, Jesus, we know, is the fulfillment of God's covenant made with David. He is the one that is the everlasting king. He is the one that can make possible this eternal throne. Jesus affirmed this identity for himself multiple times. He referred to himself as the son of David. But you get to Revelation chapter 22. It was read for us earlier, verse 16. Jesus makes it abundantly clear. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The glorious news, friends, is that we no longer have to wait for a king. He has come and he rules and reigns even as we speak. He has come and is at the Father's right hand right now, right now in the present. He is at the Father's right hand ruling and reigning. His kingdom has been inaugurated and it only awaits the full completion, the consummation when it will ultimately be fulfilled in the future when the king will return and establish his kingdom forever and ever. Certain fulfillment. God has done exactly what he said he would do by fulfilling this promise in Christ. So how do we respond to this? We come to the fourth point. How do we respond to this? 
We need to have a careful response. How ought we to live in light of the truth in which we have seen God making a promise, a covenant to David, seeing it continued all the way through the Old Testament and realized permanently and fully in Christ? What does that mean for us? I want you to consider several responses. We could give many, but I want to consider several as we conclude this morning. First of all, it calls us to be recipients of the kingdom. Mark 10, verse 15, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Hebrews 12, the writer says in verse 28, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Let's get this. The kingdom of God is something God builds, not us. We don't build the kingdom. God is the master builder. He is the one who's promised. He is the one who will fulfill his promises. It's not something that we build. We participate by God's grace. We participate in the work of God building his kingdom through his people. But it's ultimately not in our hands. We are called to simply inherit, to receive the kingdom by faith. You receive the promises of the kingdom of God by responding to the king in faith and repentance, turning from your sin and turning to him in faith by trusting in what he has done for you. You receive the kingdom. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're, not a, you're, you're here today, you're just, maybe you're just here listening, you're, you know, down deep in your heart of hearts, you're not part of this kingdom, you're not a Christian, and, and you, you, you say, well, how do I get into this kingdom? You receive it. It's given to you by the free offer of Jesus Christ and the free sacrifice that he made. It wasn't free to him, but it's free to you. He died in the place of people just like you if you would simply trust in him. The kingdom is yours. Jesus came preaching. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn from your sins, turn and trust the king, and you will be saved. You will be welcomed into this kingdom. Receive it. Receive it. I love what John Piper said about this concept. He said, the very mercy and faithfulness that guarantees David an eternal kingdom can guarantee you all the joy and righteousness and peace of that kingdom. The very mercy and faithfulness that guaranteed David this eternal kingdom can guarantee you all the joy and peace and righteousness of that kingdom. If you will receive it in faith. Receive the kingdom of God. You are called to receive this glorious gift and God will give you everlasting life. He will give you joy. He will give you the peace of this kingdom. The second response we would have is we should live as citizens of the kingdom. When you read the Bible and you read about the kingdom of God and about the king's rule and reign, it is often, it is often described as a kingdom of righteousness Righteousness and kingdom, just look it up. Go search throughout your Bibles and you will see how the kingdom and righteousness often go together. It's not just any kingdom. Yes, it's an eternal kingdom, it lasts forever, but it's a kingdom of righteousness. Therefore, those who are part of this kingdom ought to reflect the characteristics and the attributes of this kingdom. We ought to be a people who prize 
personal holiness, who prize righteousness and pursue it with every ounce of our being by the Holy Spirit who fills us. We ought to reflect the kingdom. We ought to be learning the attributes and customs of a new kingdom. Friend, I guarantee you, if you were to be uprooted right now and and be planted into a different cultural context, just pick one. If you were to be uprooted today, I'm going to pick on Rosalva, you're going to go to Brazil. Great place. Beautiful, beautiful place. Beautiful people. Glorious place to go. If you're going to move somewhere, I recommend Brazil. But if you go to Brazil, I guarantee you, you're going to have to learn the customs of that country, the language of that country, how to live in that country. Just like they would have to do the same here. And, and all you could give all kinds of examples. Well, friends, we've received a kingdom that we ought to be learning the customs and culture of. We ought to be living as residents of this kingdom. We ought to be marking our lives. If you've recognized the rule of King Jesus, then the characteristics of the king and his kingdom ought to be more and more and more apparent in your life. And if it's not that ought to cause you great concern. If you can say to me this morning that you've been part of the kingdom of God for a long period of time and your life no more looks like the kingdom than it did when you first claimed to know Christ, that is a serious problem. It may indicate that you truly don't know the king. And it may indicate that you truly aren't part of this kingdom if the kingdom attributes and characteristics aren't more and more being displayed in and through you. The Bible talks about how we should search our hearts, examine ourselves daily to see if we are part of the faith. And I don't say that to cause you doubt this morning, but, but the truth of the matter is that the gospel bears fruit in our lives. And the kingdom of God will be on display in and through you and how you relate to people and how, how you live out your life. It ought to be obvious to those around you, not just the people you know here at church, it ought to be obvious to us, but it ought to be obvious to those around you when you gather for family gatherings with unbelievers this week. There ought to be a little awkwardness there. Don't just laugh it off and say, oh, it's just a dysfunctional family. No, if you have a gathering and you have believers in that gathering and unbelievers in that gathering, there's going to be a little awkwardness because you are part of a kingdom that is radically different than what they are part of. You ought to be marked by this. I'm not saying you're going to be perfect and your righteousness is going to be exactly like the righteousness of Christ, but because of the righteousness of Christ in your life, you ought to be more and more reflecting that righteousness every day. Repentance needs to be part of your daily activity because you're grieved by by sin in your heart and life. Pursuing the king, walking in, in obedience to the king. Our priorities ought to match kingdom priorities. And all you have to do is consider your priorities. What is it that draws for your attention? What is it that you will give your time and money and efforts to without question? Is it the kingdom of God that will last forever or is it, or, or is it things in this earth that will last for a moment? And then, friend, we ought to long for the return of the king. Long for the return of the king. 
I'm not talking about Lord of the Rings or the return of the Jedi. I'm talking about the King of kings and Lord of lords, the true and everlasting King. Friend, I don't have to convince you that we live in a fallen, broken, messed up world. We do. I don't have to convince you of that. David long endured, long endured that reality himself. He understood sin. He understood the curse through the opposition he faced and even through his own sinful struggles. But friends, the brokenness that we experience in our own lives and in the, in the reality in which we live in this world ought to cause us to long for the return of our king. Do you long for his return? Are you eager to see your king face to face, to bow to him, to worship him, to to see him in the glory that he has and to, to, to realize that that will be forever? Yes, we are celebrating Christ's first advent, his first coming when he came into the world through the manger in Bethlehem, but that paved the way for another coming that's coming one day when he will come and make all things new and he will settle everything for eternity. As John looked into the future and he saw the triumph and victory and, 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 and of this king, he said, weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. He's conquered. Jesus wins. He is the true eternal king who will reign forever. No one will, will dethrone him. No one will do that. No one can do that. Friend, you ought to long for that king. And you ought to be proclaiming his reign to all of those around you. Those awkward family moments ought to be moments of proclamation. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it's difficult. Yes, people don't want to hear you. But what better news do you have for them? What better news can you present them and offer them the fact that we have this promise God made, this promise God fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ who gave himself for for us so that not only can we just live in his kingdom forever, but we get to have a personal relationship with the king. Personal relationship. You get to speak to him. This is an amazing thing. God's promise of a descendant from David is God's promise kept in Jesus Christ. One of my favorite hymns, one of my favorite hymn writers is Charles Wesley. And he wrote in the second verse of one of my favorite Christmas carols, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. In the second verse of that song, Wesley says this of, of Jesus, speaking about his lordship, speaking about his kingdom, his kingship. He says this, Born thy people to deliver born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring by thine own eternal spirit in all our hearts alone, by thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. Friend, do you know this king? Do you know him? And if you know him, do you walk in his provision for you every day? Do you know the joy of this king? Do you know what it's like to walk with him? Friend, we're called to respond by receiving this kingdom and by reflecting that work of the king in our own hearts and lives. Friends, may this Christmas 
May you enjoy all that it brings. But well beyond December 25th, as long as the Lord tarries, well beyond that that first of the year when you're well back into your normal routines, may it be known of you that you are just as joyful as you were this week, the second week of January when it really gets cold and miserable because you know the King of kings and Lord of lords, because he is ruling and reigning and you have recognized that by his grace and you are walking in the provision that he gives us. He is a great king. He is a great king. He is a glorious king and he is worthy of our worship, our devotion and our submission. Friends, let's walk with him and let's celebrate. Father, we thank you that you are faithful to your word. Lord, even as the psalmist recognized in Psalm 89, Lord, even, even when we are unfaithful, you are faithful. Nothing was going to hinder you, even the disobedience and rebellion of your own people. Nothing was going to hinder you, Lord from keeping your word that you made. God, we thank you that you are a God who is faithful to your word, that you not only promise, you provide. So Lord, would you help us to trust you? Would you help us to realize that we have been provided all that we ever need? Lord, it was promised even in as early as the third chapter of Genesis, in this promised seed who would crush the head of the serpent. Lord, it was demonstrated even as Isaac was laid on the altar, showing, Lord, how we need one who would step into our place, showing the need of a substitute as that ram was provided at the last moment so that Isaac would not have to die, but the lamb instead. Lord, we realized that we needed one who would step into the role of a mediator. We see how that was demonstrated even in the life of Moses. And today, Lord, we see through the promise made to David, the promise of a king, how we have a king. Lord, we have one who has conquered. We have one who is our substitute. We have one who is our mediator. We have one who is our king. And all of these promises have found their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. God, to you be the glory to you be the honor, to you be the praise for what you have done for us. Lord, we celebrate, Lord, not just a special child. As we think about Christmas, we celebrate a holy king. God, would you help us to glory in that provision. Lord, remove all of the distractions. We're distracted people. We're so bogged down with earthly things worldly pursuits and things, Lord, that just buy for our attention and time. Lord, I just pray that you would help us to make space right now in our lives to see you for who you truly are, to walk with you, to love you, to to respond to you. God, you have given us so much. God, would you help us to walk in the provision that you've granted through Jesus. Lord, that we would celebrate him that we would worship Him, that we would honor Him, that we would proclaim Him. 
you are so good. And we thank you for what you've done. We pray this in the holy and powerful and faithful name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ.